All right, let's get started. This hour, we're going to be talking about Christ and the person. Christ the person, I should say. Counseling and Christ the person is the title of it. It relates to the dual natures of Christ, and I believe question 12 on your counseling exam. We've got 55 minutes, which uh, this is about a 210-minute discussion. So we'll cut where we can we'll trim where we can we'll get as much we'll get through as much of it as we can and honor the time limits that they have for us um which let me make sure i know that all right 1220 is when lunch starts so that gives us about 50 minutes okay let's uh let's pray lord we love you thank you for the opportunity to talk through an incredible topic we are glad to think about Jesus and how it impacts what we know and how we counsel. Lord, I pray that you would please grant us wisdom as we think through, think through this particular issue. Thank you for our dear brothers and sisters that are all here. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, when we think about Christ the person, let's start by mentioning, have you ever considered what we ultimately counsel? Right, so three questions. What do you counsel? How would you typically describe biblical counseling to someone else? And what part does Jesus have in your system of counseling? Now, I ask those three questions because I was asked something close to those three questions by Paul Tripp in my doctoral uh, exam back in 2002, probably. And what he had observed among what he had observed among a lot of counselors is that we were good at counseling principles. We were good at saying you need to do this, 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 and this, but possibly in some of our counseling we were missing Christ. We were missing the the importance of Christ in our overall counseling picture. In fact, when he first asked the question, I had a hard time even putting it together. What are you talking about? It was Paul Tripp and Tim Lane in this particular interview, uh, and it was my oral exams, and I was just trying to think in my mind, what exactly do you mean, do I counsel Christ, or or am I missing Christ? This was way early in the whole gospel-centered, right? it was in the beginnings of that conversation. But that stuck with me because I think you don't want to be Bible principled, right? The Bible is meant to get us in connection with Christ, right? It's meant to help our relationship with the Lord. So we don't want to counsel in a way where somebody would learn biblical principles, but in the process of learning biblical principles, they would miss Christ, that somehow they would be a Bible principled person. This is what I'm going to do because the Bible teaches it, but not walk with the Lord anymore or any closer. So that would be my concern. Our goal over the next hour, over this session, 
that used to say over the next two hours, now it says over one session, is to give you a fresh reminder of the person and work of Jesus. We'll explore some key passages in an effort to help you counsel, live, and love Jesus, which is our goal. Jesus in his humanity is the perfect example for us. So a lot of this relates to the humanity of Christ, but we're also going to be talking about his deity as well. So Christ took on humanity. He came to earth and he became the God-man. There's a couple of key principles that we want to talk about as we think about this. I think there are 10 total. I've given you implications, implications for each principle as we talk through it. And the principles just simply are, are highlights of the life of Christ. Number one, he was miraculously conceived. He was the God-man. Now, there are lots and lots of passages. We can't look at every text. You're going to have to trust me on some. Certainly go back and study them and think through it in your own mind. In Galatians, it says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might become the adoption as sons. I think that is that is one of the sweetest verses. For some reason, I tend to forget that verse. I tend to for uh, I don't know why it drops off my mind, but every time I get a chance to bump into it, I'm glad to. Right? Because what great truth. Right? Jesus came. Jesus was, was born of a woman, which means he was a person. He was born under the law, just like each one of us, in order that he could redeem us out from under that law. And that's exactly what he did. Hebrews describes Jesus as the one that is, he demonstrated faithfulness. He was perfect. What are the implications of the fact that he was the God-man? He was completely God and completely man. Well, let me see. I need to look. There it is. Did I miss one? Christ has no sin nature. Okay, there it is. Christ had no sin nature. The reason he didn't is because he was born of a woman. The sin nature is past. Uh, we call it seminal headship, where the sin nature per se is in Adam, right? So it passed from man to man through right everybody else has had a man as a dad except for jesus which the holy spirit miraculously uh conceived with mary and so jesus ha <coughs> had no sin nature as fully divine jesus could pay the infinite price for our redemption as our human substitute right so he was person and as person he could pay the redemption price. Now, we'll talk more about this toward the end, but the reason he could pay the price is because as God, it was infinite, right? He had infinite power, which would pay an infinite price. As such, Christ is the mediator between God and man. Did I say it's fully divine? Forgive me. I'm not see. I can't see this very good, and so I'm having to check both. My apologies. As fully man, Jesus could pay the infinite price for our redemption. I might have skipped as fully divine. If I did, please forgive me. Jesus could pay the infinite price for our redemption as God. I think I did miss that. So my apologies. 
I have done this before. And Christ is the mediator. There we go. Christ is the mediator between God and man. First uh, Timothy 2, Paul says that. And there's a pretty cool song about it. All right, so number two. He also was the perfect embodiment of God. Right When Jesus came into the world in John 1.14, probably most of you have that memorized. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So what we pick up in this text are two elements. First, the glory of God came in the flesh. Right? So He was a person. He lived... He demonstrated the glory of God perfectly. I have John 17 as a reference here. Remember Jesus in John 17, he's praying right before he goes back to heaven and he prays and he says, I have glorified you. And then he says, then he passes his glory on to each one of us in that prayer. He mentions both of those things. And Jesus was full of grace and truth. So he demonstrated in his person, he demonstrated in his life what it means to be able to connect a life full of truth, but also embedded in relationship, embedded with people. Right. So at sunrise, we talk about all the time, love of God, love God supremely, love your neighbor sincerely. It's the first, it's the two great commandments. Right, so Jesus demonstrated what it was to love God supremely. He lived in the fear of God. We'll talk about that in a little bit here. So he's full of truth, but he's also full of grace. His whole presence. Right, We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace. Yes, he's here. Right, Just the sense that God came to earth as a baby, took on flesh, we would say full of grace. His very birth demonstrates it, but also full of truth. What are the implications? Well, as he manifested God, they kept the word together. Right, and I'm talking specifically about he and the disciples. Right, he demonstrated what it was to be God And then his disciples and he walked together. John 17 talks about that. He gave God's words to his disciple again out of John 17. Right. So he helped them learn and grow in truth. I think chapter one of John 20 and 22 mentioned that as well. Unity in Christ is a visible demonstration of the realities of God. That would be John 17, verse 21. As we're unified, we visibly demonstrate God. We walk as he walked, even in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. As in Christ's ones, we enjoy walking. We enjoy making the unity of the Trinity visible. God's glory has been passed down to us. That's chapter 17, verse 22. 
and there is a bifactual focus, and that is grace and truth. Because I know we have ten principles, we've hurried through the first two a bit. Um, but really, it's important to see the picture that Jesus was the full embodiment of God. We saw it, they saw it, they talked about it, they wrote about it. He lived it perfectly. So, he's the full embodiment. Look at number three. He was submissive, or what we would say, obedient to his parents, and was discerning as a young man. In Luke 2, 41 to 52, in that section... It says Jesus grew physically and he grew in wisdom, right? In stature, he grew in favor with God and in favor with man. So when he grew physically, of course, we're talking about as a person. He started as a baby. By the time we get to Luke 2, he's about 12 years old. He grew in wisdom. What kind of wisdom? Well, knowledge and discernment, essentially, Like any child would have grown, Jesus demonstrated all of the same intellectual development as any child, right? When Jesus came in Philippians 2 and he put aside, which that's our next text, but he put aside what it meant to be God, right? He allowed himself, he submissively went through the development like any other person. In Hebrews 5, 8, 9, It says, though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. The idea of learning obedience, Jesus as a son, he learned obedience, or you could say he demonstrated obedience, right? He went through all of the necessary pressures, just like we do, and Hebrews picks up on that in multiple passages. So he goes through the pressure. As he goes through the pressure, he demonstrates what it means to be obedient to the first great commandment, second great commandment. In Luke 2, the text we're talking about, in verse 51, it says he was subject to his parents. Right? So he was, for second great commandment, he demonstrated that perfectly. First great commandment, he demonstrates that perfectly as well. So the implications, I would suggest, are two. First, there must also... For each one of us be a desire to be a submissive to, and I have authority, but in my notes, I jotted down to perfect and imperfect authority. Jesus was submissive to both. Perfect authority, he was submissive to God vertically. Imperfect authority, right? Imagine being Joseph and Mary, right? What a high pressure as parents, um, the only perfect person that ever lived, and he has to be my kid, right? What a, what a rough one. Um, but for sure, they saw Jesus respond to imperfect authority. And then we see it to government authority, right? And to religious authority, all of it imperfect. Yet Jesus responds to it perfectly. He became Again, that Hebrews 5, 8, 9, he learned obedience by what he suffered. He demonstrated it. The desire to be like Christ, then, is a desire to grow in Christ and the Word. 
As Jesus learned and demonstrated it, we want to learn and demonstrate it. We want to let the Word of God renew us in our heart. I heard a sermon just recently on being renewed. It was out of Romans 12, verse 2. Uh, and, and all the person talked about, he actually never identified the Bible as what God uses to change us. Right, but that's critical. Uh, we have to know truth because truth is what changes. Truth is what renews. It changes us image by image. So he was submissive to his parents and discerning. We learn that through the word. Here's number four. He was submissive and selfless as God. Submissive and selfless as God. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, you know this text. It's important to see the context is sanctification and life in the community of God. If you read through the book of Philippians, this most important section in the Bible on the humility and humanity, uh, the the kenosis, we call it, related to Christ, this most important passage in the Bible on Jesus is right in the middle. It's used as an example of how we're supposed to live as the body of Christ. Right? Paul is not, he is teaching, of course, he is teaching something here. But the purpose of it isn't teaching. The purpose of it is as an example Right in chapter 1, he's saying, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. He gets to chapter 2 and he says, and this is what conduct worthy of the gospel looks like, lived out. The first four verses, right, he's saying, this is what our fellowship is. This is the goal. Now consider Jesus who lived this perfectly. Right, so it's an example for us. Jesus, in fact, is the example used to demonstrate the way that you live as a believer. In our implications, we actually have some of those things highlighted. Let's just think about them because they're out of the text. First, Jesus humbly obeyed the Father in verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross humbled himself. You have a high view of God when you're willing to think so much of God that you're becoming obedient to die. Right? That is a high view of God. And here, that's really the sense of humility that he leaves us. He was willing Verse 3, it says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. We say, what would drive Jesus to become obedient to death? What kind of humility is that? That's verse 3. It wasn't about selfish ambition. Instead, he was willing to become obedient unto death in an effort to serve us. 
Jesus, here's the second one, also did not hold his status tightly in verse 7. It says, but (laughs) made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Right, it's the idea that he did not hold his heavenly status so tightly that he couldn't come as a person. Now, I've told this story. Some people have heard me tell this story before. I've been at Baptist Bible College as a student, as a seminary student, as a faculty member. This year's 25 years as faculty, full-time faculty. At total, all total for 34 years. Um. One president we had, this was back when they did four-color printing, right? And you would send something off to the printing press, and they would run it through the printer, and they would have to do the various colors, and it was quite a process. And so you would send something off, you would get it back in the mail then, or you'd have to go pick it up or whatever that was like. And this particular president had been granted an honorary doctorate by the school at some point. And when the program came back for graduation, so there's about 2,000 of of these programs, probably 10 or 12-page program, when it came back from the printer, it didn't, although it identified his position, it didn't show that he was a doctor. I think it maybe just had him as reverend. I'm not sure what it identified him as. And he got so upset, he sent that entire thing back. Now, it's what we sent to the printer, so I think we had to pay for it. But we got the whole thing reprinted so that it would reflect his his doctorate that had been given to him. Now, you think about that. Right, that's... Would you, if... Right, I, I know a little bit about having a doctorate. Would you be disappointed if in an official ceremony they didn't recognize your position? Well, they did call him president, but they didn't say he was a doctor. So I think there'd be personal disappointment. The challenge I have, and I'm not in his situation, so I don't know much what my choice would be, but the challenge I would ask myself is, is it worth paying for two more thousand of those things to be printed so that it demonstrates that I have an honorary degree. Mm, That's harder, isn't it? Right? Well, Jesus, we say, wonder what Jesus would do. That thing that we could wear a bracelet. That was before bracelets, I think. Right? So what would Jesus do? We should have had those already. Jesus came as a man, even though he was God. That's what Jesus did. Right now, the angel did tell people, hey, he's God, but it didn't. I don't think it was printed on the brochure. Um, It wasn't in the newspaper. He didn't hold his status tightly. Imagine being God forever and then coming to earth and being treated like an infant. That'd be kind of (laughs) wild. Right. Joseph. Right. You wonder how often he was tempted just to speak. Joseph, stop. Let mom do it. She's better at changing diapers. Okay. (laughs) Jesus waited on God's timing. Verse 9. That is embarrassing. You know, Joseph got to heaven and thought, oh, what a miserable dad I was. Um, 
Verse 9 says, Therefore God has all has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Now, we know that happened, according to Colossians 3, that happened at the ascension. Right? I would say Ephesians 1 and Colossians 3, when he was seated in the heavenlies, but it's yet to be consummated. Right? It's yet to be finally recognized. So Jesus was willing to wait on God's timing for the whole world to recognize him. In fact, verse 10 says that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's yet to happen. So Jesus was willing to wait. I think what good and incredible humility. Therefore, let's say it this way. The goal is that every believer would be as committed to sanctification as Christ was to pleasing and honoring the Father. Specifically in this text, to put the concerns of others as more important than self. I think, right, you might want to jot yourself a note, that has to include verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4 say, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or, <coughs> pardon me, or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for your own interest, but also for the interest of others. Right? It has to be part of the lens through which we see people. There's an inner man humility that produces... Outer man qualities. So that's what that's important. So he was submissive and selfless. And we are challenged to do the same. Number five. He was, when he was on earth, he is still today. That's one of those hard sentences to put together. Right? He was the God man. First John chapter one deals with this. There were real and significant questions here about Christ, which were dividing the church. So there are two, right? There were two groups. The first side said, well, Jesus, he was a man. Those were the, they were called the Corinthians. They would say that the Corinthians would say that Jesus was only a man, but when the dove landed on him at his baptism, and then until the Garden of Gethsemane, he was God. Right? So in that window from the from the baptism until the Garden of Gethsemane, God had descended on him. He was also God but always a man. That was the Corinthians. So Jesus is a man. In the second one, it's the docetist. They would have said that Jesus didn't actually have a physical body. They would say that he was always simply Jesus, but he wasn't human. He was just spirit. All right, so those were the two positions. In 1 John 1, John deals with both. Right. So in verse 1, he says Jesus was 
a man. He says that which was born, that which was from, pardon me, the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, our hands have handled concerning the word of life. What's he saying? Well, from the moment we knew Jesus, we touched him. We handled him. We lived with him. And what? He was a person. He was a person as much as any of us are a person. Right? He was a person. We handled him. We touched him. Right? So just like any one of the men here would say, yes, this is my wife and can touch her arm, touch her face, touch her hair. Right? I'm handling her. That was what John's saying. Of course, he was a person. What do you think? Who do you think we were with for all that time? But then in verse 2, he says he was also God. Look at 2. He says, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you what? That eternal life which was with the Father and which was manifested to us. Listen, we watched him. We lived with him. There's no question he was God. You can't ignore the fact that Jesus was God, John says in verse 2. In verses 3 and 4, he says, you better get that. You need to know Christ, because if you don't know Christ, you can't have fellowship with God or your neighbor. All human fellowship, that is biblical fellowship, comes down to whether or not you know Christ. In verse 3, he says, that which we have seen and heard, what is the verse 3? He's referring to both verses 1 and 2. The fact that Jesus was a person, verse 1. Jesus is God, verse 2. That which we have seen and heard, what? We declare to you. So now, right, Christ is also declared as propositional truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man can come to the Father but by me. So John now is declaring the truth of the dual natures of Christ. He was God. He was man. That I declare to you. Now, what happens if you receive those words? That you also may have fellowship with us. So in order, what he's saying, in order for you and me to have fellowship together, you have to get Christ right. You have to understand that G- the dual natures of Christ, fellowship is dependent upon it. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus. Ah, now He just took it a different direction. So if we're going to have fellowship together, that's horizontal, what does that depend on? It depends on vertical fellowship. You have to have fellowship with God. If you have fellowship with God, now we can have fellowship together Verse 4, and these things we write to you that your joy may be full. So what are the implications? One, you have to walk in the light in order to have fellowship. Now, the text goes on and talks about that. So fellowship is dependent upon a relationship with Christ. Now, this is just a side issue. But if you hope to have fellowship, with another person who says they're a, they're a Christian, you have to have Christ right. They have to have Christ right. They don't have to have, there isn't any other text outside of holy living, 
right? They have to know Christ and they need to be striving to walk in the spirit. If someone's doing those two things, the Bible says we can have fellowship with them. If they don't know Christ, we're not having fellowship. What are we having? We're trying to evangelize. That's a whole different level of relationship. Fellowship means we're experiencing what we have the most in common, and that is our experience of Christ. Excellent. Would you, well, it would be only about Christ. Yes, right, unless you're correct. You can only have true Christian fellowship with someone who is on board with Christ. Now, what that means, right, I just left Lafayette. I was there this week. Um, so I don't know what all the denominations were there. I have no idea. 20, 20 different denominations that are close to us. I had lunch one day with a group of pastors. They're from a different Baptist group than the one that I've been familiar with. Um, we didn't, I don't know what confession of faith they have. We didn't talk about that stuff. Why? Because they're right on Christ and they're striving to walk in the spirit. But that was enough. Right? So we're right on the right things. Now, they could, one of them could have believed that homosexuality is fine. We didn't talk about that. Why? Because we fellowshiped over the things that we shared. That is Christ. We would have to nuance those things, right? And then you have to ask, so do I hang out with these people and enjoy them as brothers or sisters in Christ individually, or do I invite my corporate church to participate? I think that's a whole different level of wisdom, Right, because I can enjoy fellowship with those 20 denominations. I don't know how many were there, but let's say 20. I can enjoy fellowship with them, but that doesn't mean I would let any of the 19 come and speak here on a Sunday morning. Right, because I think I have a, as a shepherd of this congregation, I have a responsibility to protect this congregation corporately different than what I can do as an individual where I'm allowing the word to determine to the extent that I can have fellowship with the people, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, they need to be right on Christ. They need to be striving to walk in the Spirit, which it means here, John describes it as walk in light. Right, you see that in verse 5. He says, And this is a message we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, but we walk in darkness, not meaning that we're perfect. He's saying here that you walk and sin and you don't care about it. That would be walking in darkness. He says, If that's what you say, you lie and you really don't practice the truth. There's a significant problem there. Right? You can't say you're in light and in darkness at the same time. Something's not right. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Ah, that's interesting. He doesn't even say you have fellowship with God. 
Why? Because walking in the light is fellowship with God. Right? So if you walk in the light, meaning you have fellowship with God, then anybody and everybody who walks in the light, we can talk about our relationship with Christ together. So walk in the light for fellowship. Here's the next one. Fellowship is offered in spite of sin. You see that in verse 9. If we confess our sin, which means what? That means we are sinners. What is God? He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The idea in this text is not perfection and it's not salvation. This is fellowship forgiveness. Familial is another way to say it. All right, so we're in the family of God. We sin. We ask God to forgive us. He just takes that sin and just clears the table so that there's nothing between us in relationship to our communion. And Jesus is our advocate and propitiation. I think David maybe got, went over verse 2. Verse 1 says he's our advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself, Jesus, is the propitiation. That means wrath-bearing sacrifice. That's why we would teach unlimited atonement because Jesus is the propitiation or the life wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. So you would say that the atonement is unlimited, but then you have to, what? It's unlimited to the extent that it impacts every person in the world, but it's only eternally efficacious for those that are saved, right? So when people talk about limited versus unlimited, you have to actually figure out what they're saying. The extent of the atonement impacts every unbeliever. That's why he's saying ours and yours, right? So it's for our sins, but not for ours, but the whole world. And so if you were to say, well, no, because my theology limits it to the limp to those only that get saved, which would be, right, so that God's choice people, if that's where your theology would limit it, then you say, well, this that means that can only mean the world of the elect. Well, then you have to say, well, how does John use it? John uses the word cosmos seven different ways between John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. And I would argue you have to do hermeneutical gymnastics in this text to limit the whole world to the world of the elect. I just don't think that's what John is talking about at all. I think it only makes sense for that the whole world here would be the whole world. And there is a temporal benefit for every person in the atonement. You get to live and breathe in a planet you don't own, God owns, right? So you get to experience common grace, but there's a day you won't experience that, right? And at that point, you'll be judged. And only those that are saved will experience the eternal benefit of the atonement. So he's our advocate and our propitiation. And what does that do? I would say since Jesus is our advocate and propitiation, pardon me, it demands then that we are full of humility and gratitude. 
because I can't, I can't demand God is my advocate through Christ. I can't demand that God gives me salvation. That's humility. And then the fact that we've received it, gratitude. Number six, he demonstrated compassion and patience. I love John 11. It's the story of Lazarus. A couple things. Again, I'm, we're having to flatten some of this. Just You have to go back and read the text. Jesus <coughs> pardon me, had awareness of God's sovereignty and plan. In fact, he was living in light of it. Verse after verse in this text demonstrates it. They said, Jesus, Lazarus is sick. We need to go. He says, oh, no, he's just sleeping. It's all right. We'll get there. That's in verses 4 through 6, verse 11, verses 14 and 15. All of those verses, Jesus finally says, hey, he's not dead. He's just sleeping. Be patient. We'll get there when we get there. Sounds like something my dad would say. And what else? So he lived in light of a sovereign God who has a plan and letter B, he was invested in people. Clearly, verse five, it says he loved people. Verse 36, the people said he loved people. When Jesus had Mary come out to him and accuse him, and when Martha first did it, I should have started with Martha. Martha accuses him, had you been here, had you cared, that's another way to say it, my brother would be alive. Jesus demonstrated he cared. Same thing with Mary. He demonstrated he cared. When he saw their unbelief, the people, and he saw their sadness, John eleven thirty five, 35, it says he wept. So he was invested in people. What are some implications? I would say, one, there is a steadfast awareness and trust in God's plan throughout his story. Right? We live trusting God. But even when we trust God, so right, so that our, in counseling, our answer is let's trust God. Let's trust God. But what else? We can't fail to show compassion. Jesus knew the full story and still showed compassion. I would have blown right through that, possibly. I'd have been like, Mary, would you knock it off? Let's go to the tomb. Right? Not quit. Don't blame me for your brother dying. And would you just understand it's bigger than what you get? Right? Jesus didn't do any of those things. He showed compassion, even though he knew he was getting ready to do a miracle. So we need to deal with people then with an awareness of the greater situation. That is, God has got this. God's in charge. He's sovereign. And the circumstance, we need to strive for patience. In this story, both for Christ, Christ showed patience both to the sisters and to the unbelieving masses. So he demonstrated compassion and patience. Number seven, he demonstrated grace. Trust and self-control in Matthew 26. This is the garden scene. Judas, the night of his arrest. Let me give you five things here in terms of the narrative. He warned the disciples, by my count, four different times. He warned them of this impending danger. Verse 31, 38. 40 and 41 and verse 43, he warned them over and over. 
Be ready, boys. Get ready. He confessed his dependency and willingness to God. He does that in verses 38, 39, and 42. Even though he was the God-man, he was still saying, I need you, Father. He demonstrated grace toward his enemies. I think we see that in verses 47 to 52 when they came and confronted him. I would say the next one's for sure true. He demonstrated the he was the perfect example of self-control. Right? He could have killed so many folks. He could have done all kinds of things. In verse 52, 63, 67, Peter's ready to chop people's, he does chop people's ear off and Jesus heals it. When he says who he is, everybody falls, right? Jesus could have done anything. Instead, he submitted to the plan of God. Again, what's number seven saying? You notice there, he demonstrated grace, trust, grace, what? Toward the folks, trust in God, self-control the entire time. And then letter E, he loves and is patience with Peter, for sure. Right, Peter, he says to Peter over and over, hey, get ready, get ready, get ready. Peter sleeps. But on the day of his resurrection, which is listed there as Mark 16, 7, what word does the angel give to Mary? The angel says, go get, this is the message from God. Go get the disciples and Peter. Right, what incredible patience and love. What are some implications? Here's one. We want to be aware of temptation and prepare. That's true every day of our lives. Only unwise people don't prepare for temptation. Doesn't mean I'm always prepared, but we all need to be. We are wise to communicate our dependency in prayer to God. So often, we are less than patient with our enemies. But yet, Jesus handled them with incredible grace. Although at any point, Jesus could have zapped or changed everything, he demonstrates total self-control in this pressure-filled circumstance. which is, again, only a manifestation of his grace. Related to Peter, we could ask this question, do we forgive the way Christ forgives? Are we as interested in showing mercy as much as Christ showed mercy? And are we willing to trust people as much as Christ trusts people? I think all those questions are good. Again, some of these things, we're just going to have to leave you to go and look at them later, but just good stuff to think through. What else do we see in Jesus? Well, he dealt exceptionally or perfectly with temptation. This is from Matthew 4. Remember when he is with Satan. We learn in verses 1 and 2 that Jesus was hungry and weak. I think we call that hangry, don't we? I think that's the term people use. 
He's hungry and weak, right? The fact that I know the term for it means what? We often give ourselves a pass for it. But Jesus didn't get a pass. Jesus, the devil comes and tempts him three times in verses 3, 5, and 8. Right? So Jesus offers these three things. He tempts him three times. And by tempt, he just puts him in a circumstance. They say, how do we understand the word temptation? The word temptation simply means pressure-filled circumstance. So when we say he tempted Jesus, it wasn't like Jesus is on the precipice of sinning, meaning he's being tempted. The word tempted is our word parosmos. It means that he was in a pressured circumstance. That's the same word as tempted. He was undergoing a trial. That's the same word as tempted. So he was offered the opportunity, but his heart responded to it in perfection. What are the implications? Jesus knew the word of God well. It was the oral tradition, but he knew it well enough to quote it. Right? I mean, he did. It was God-breathed. So he had a one-up on us there, but we could memorize the word for sure. Jesus knew the word. He depended upon the word of God. The word of God became the words of God in this story. It's actually powerful. The word of God can become our words as well. So Jesus depended upon the word of God. When he was talking to Satan, the word of God became the words of God. And Jesus responded perfectly, even in weakness. In these three instances, and if you'll see, I have listed in your notes there, see also 1 John 2, 15 to 17. I think all that's in the world, the less the flesh, the less the eyes, the pride of life. I think that corresponds to the Matthew 4 temptation. Probably also corresponds to James 3, wisdom from below. And Genesis 3, when Eve looked at, considered it tasteful, and wanted to be like God. I think probably that is the categories in all those instances. So what's the question for the counselor? It's to think through battle plans based upon the temptation of Jesus. Right? What are some of the possibilities of a plan of action? Right. So you need to know the word. You need to study it. You need to meditate on it. You need to memorize it. You need to pray, right? I think we can begin to look at that. When we're in pressure-filled circumstances, how do we prepare to respond the way God wants us to? All right, number nine. He is our brother in suffering. Hebrews 2, verses 9 through 18. In verse 9, we learn that Jesus was willing to die. And... As he lived, verses 10 through 18, he had an eye for ministry. Right? So he's willing to suffer and die. He has an eye for ministry. But in verse 11, you know what he calls us? He calls us his brothers in suffering. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is many things. But one of the things we never want to forget is he is our brother in suffering. In verse 10 and 14 verses, he is our captain of our salvation. What a blessing. The captain of our salvation is also our brother in suffering. 
Why? Because he shared in our humanity. He is one of us. He's part of our flesh and our blood. As such, he offers aid to us to meet our needs in our pressure-filled circumstances. Notice the next statement. Suffering demonstrates his place to be the perfect sacrifice, and it helps us as we grow to become more like him in our practice. Right? So suffering does two things. In Jesus' life, it proved his character. It proved. It demonstrated. That's how it's saying he learned obedience. It proved his character. In our life, it shapes our character. Because there's nothing for Jesus. Jesus didn't need to be shaped. It demonstrated. For us, we're shaped by suffering, and then we demonstrate like him. So it helps us as we grow to become more like him in our practice. In verses 14 and 15, through death, he destroyed him who had the power of death. Therefore, we are no longer under the bondage of sin and death. So he is our brother in suffering. All right, let's get principle the text 10 here in principle 10 it's he is our great high priest hebrews 4 but these are some of the best passages of the bible for christ we're flying over them because we just have one weekend to work through these things and one hour in that weekend he is our great high priest hebrews 4 14 to 16 so two things we learn from that First, Jesus provides grace from the throne. We go to the throne of God and he provides grace to us. And he extends comfort to us. How can he extend grace and comfort? Because he's like us. He's just like us. He is the God-man. By man, humanity, he's our brother in suffering. Look at these three implications. Jesus faced all the pressure-filled circumstance just like we do. Yet, he was without sin. Again, this is so critical. I, I hate when I hear people say, Jesus was tempted just like we are, and they're using the word tempted, again, as if Jesus is sweating. He has got drops of sweat on his forehead thinking, do I want to sin? Do I not want to sin? Right? I really want to sin. That's not what he's saying by tempted. That's how our heart responds. And many times we just say, well, I do want to sin, so I want to do it. Right? Which is a challenge for all of us. It's a challenge for me. I'm looking at several people. I'm not trying to look at anybody individually. <laughs> so I look at, I can do a get real here and look at myself. So be real. So when you... Jesus is not trying to decide, am I going to sin or not? What does the word temptation mean? It's the word parosmos. It's pressure-filled circumstances. He is in the exact same pressures. That's our word temptation, parosmos. In those pressures, he faced the identical pressures we face. Not... With the sweat drops of, am I going to sin or not? No, he knew he wasn't going to sin. 
Because that pressure, he went into that pressure, what? With the pure and holy heart that only wanted to fear God, that only wanted to do what God wanted him to do. That's why in John 17, he could pray, all I've ever wanted to do is glorify you, and that's what I've done. So when we go to a passage like this one in Hebrews, it's not, but Jesus is just like us. He almost sinned too. No, he almost didn't sin. That never happened. But in the same situations where we almost sin and all do sin at times, he demonstrated perfect righteousness. That's why Hebrews says, yet without sin. So we can go to the throne because he understands our problems. He understands our pressures. He's been there. So two questions. Do you regularly and joyfully go before the throne? You say, oh, I could never pray about this because it's so embarrassing that I want to sin. Right, how silly. I've had counselees say, oh, yeah, I don't pray about that because I'm wanting to sin. Well, yes, that's why God says, come to the throne. I'll give you grace. I've been there. Not wanting to sin, but I certainly know that pressure And that pressure in a heart that's struggling to be holy, that's pretty tough. So I'm happy to give you grace in it. I'm happy to help you in it. And then the next one, do you look to Jesus as your source of comfort? Implications. Number one, the interplay between God's human nature and divine nature. Look at these two statements. These are important as you answer your ACBC questions. Although Jesus' human nature did not change its essential character because it was united with the divine nature in the one person of Christ, Jesus' human nature gained a, a worthiness to be worshipped. Because Jesus was a person. We don't worship people. But because Jesus was the God-man, Certainly, his human, the fact he was a person, is worthy to be worshipped, and an inability to sin, both of which did not nor does not belong to human beings otherwise. We don't worship people, and every human can sin. With Jesus, we do worship him, and because he was divine, he could not sin. Letter B, Jesus' human nature gave him, A, an ability to experience suffering and death. Because he couldn't have experienced suffering and death if he weren't a person. So because he's a person, he could experience it. That's why it says he knows every pressure that we have because he can experience those things. And as a person, he could die. Letter B, an ability to understand by experience what we are experiencing, and letter C, an ability to be our substitute sacrifice, which Jesus as God alone could not have done. He says, well, you know, I don't understand really how those things interplay. I say, welcome to the world of humility. None of us do. If someone says they understand this completely, they probably haven't thought about it long. Because the more you think about it, the harder it is to understand. 
So we just have to read it and say, by faith, we accept it as true, which is the work of the Holy Spirit. So we accept it as true and we hold it, what, as mystery. So let number two, the entire discussion emphasizes the incredible love of God. You know, uh, there, a passage that's not listed here that might be a good one for you to think about would be 1 John 4, 7 through 11, especially verse 10. 1 John 4, 7 through 11. Number three, when you consider you, the counselor, how do you need to grow to become more like Christ? Which of these fundamental qualities of Christ do you need to strive to put on? Right, so as a counselor, what do you need to do? And I realize we've hit lunchtime. I'm just wrapping up with these three statements. Number four, you will be forced as you deal with counselees to put on these Christ-like characteristics. God loves you enough to send the right people to help you grow, so be ready for them. Right? God's going to put people in your life who push your buttons. God's going to put people in your life that stretch you. Could be your children. Could be your parents. Could be grandparents. Could be friends. Could be counselees. Could be other church members. But God loves you enough to put those folks in your life so that you will grow through it. Number five, you become the living example of what it means to walk and live like Christ to your counselees, to your neighbors, to your parents, to your grandparents, to your children, to your friends, etc. All the groups I mentioned. So how are you doing as a model of Christ likeness? Right. Don't forget, we didn't even hardly we haven't even talked about this text, but remember Second Corinthians five. 18 through 21, you're an ambassador for Christ, and it says Jesus makes his plea through us. That's important. Number six, this is the final one. Are you tempted to counsel principles and individual verses and being religious, or do you live and counsel Christ? who embodies those principles, verses, and true faith. Right? We want folks, we want them to be like Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Again, that's a couple hours of lecture in one. So bonus. Lord, we pray that you would help us in these ways. Thank you for all that you do for us. And for in this moment, thank you for our lunch as well. We pray that it would be a nourishment to our bodies. Thank you for the dear folks that have prepared it for us. In Jesus' name, amen.